that took place on the day of Pentecost. This is the first Pentecost after the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, Jesus has met with his disciples. He's instructed them to go out and preach the gospel, preach it to every creature, preach it throughout the world, preach it to all nations, making disciples. And this is the first day. This is the first time that they've done that. Pentecost, of course, 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, one of the big festival days, one of the big feast days in the Jewish calendar. And so there were, oh, tons and tons of people gathered together in the city of Jerusalem. And the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to preach. The central point of Peter's preaching, and we have Peter's words highlighted for us in the text, has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. His conclusion is found in verse 36, which is that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But the crucial element in all of that, the crucial point of proof, is the resurrection of Jesus. And so in verse 22 begins his sermon proper. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God uh, uh, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you sell, yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was not possible for him to be held in its power. And so he's recalling the day just, just a few weeks prior to this that the leaders of the Jews, along with those gathered there calling out for his crucifixion, uh, delivered him over to the Romans and they had him put to death. They put him to death by crucifixion. All four gospel accounts, Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20, all four gospel accounts affirm the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They tell us that on that first day of the week, the third day since his crucifixion, a group of women went to the tomb. They had noted which tomb Jesus was buried in. And so they went there to prepare him for permanent burial. But when they got there, the stone was rolled away from the tomb, and they found it empty. The body of Jesus was not there. The tomb was empty. They returned to a small group of disciples that had, were gathered together, and they told the disciples what they had seen at the tomb. Other disciples then went to the tomb themselves, and they found it empty as well. It didn't take them very long to understand what had happened. He was no longer dead. That is, Jesus was no longer dead. He had come back to life, and he, is, he was raised from the dead. Now, through the years, millions, um, literally millions of people have accepted the resurrection of Jesus as fact. Millions, even today, accept it as fact. Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. Our question is, well, what does it all mean? Well, what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus? Is this simply an interesting, curious, historical fact? Or is it more profound than that? Does it actually have important meaning? Is there significance to 
the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what we want to think about today. What does it mean? Well, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for us? What is its significance? Let's talk a little bit about the fact of the resurrection. Peter states his proposition here in Acts chapter 2. God raised him up again. Did you state, state that as a straightforward a declarative sentence? Jesus has been raised from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Is there any evidence that that actually took place? Is it simply an assertion of Peter, a disciple of Jesus, and an advocate and adherent to Jesus? Or is there evidence that Jesus actually was raised from the dead? There is as good, as ev good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it has been suggested, as for any event in ancient history. There is as much evidence, and the evidence is as good, for the resurrection of Jesus, that He has come back to life, as for any event in ancient history. In fact, there is more evidence for this than there is for many events in, in ancient history. On the day of Pentecost, here in Acts chapter 2, Peter sets forth, pr proposes three lines of evidence to support his proposition, God raised him up again. The first line of evidence is Scripture. The Scriptures have predicted that and support the idea of the resurrection. And so in verse 25, Peter begins to quote the 16th Psalm. And so he goes back into the Old Testament, the 16th Psalm, verses 8 through 11, and what he's suggesting is that this passage proves gives evidence that Jesus has been raised. And so listen to what it says. David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also shall live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me all the ways of life, You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. And so, especially focus on that verse 27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or to decay. Now, in the following verses, Peter explains the passage. He gives us an explanation. And in the explanation, what he says is, now David could not have been talking about himself, because David's body, when he died, was buried... And it decayed. It's almost as if David says, it's right over there. You can go look at it if you want to. And so it could, David could not have been talking about himself. David says of the one he's referring to, he would not see decay. He would not see corruption. But David's body did decay. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne forever, we might add, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And so David could not have been talking about himself. He had to be talking about someone else. Someone who died. They went down into Hades, the realm of the dead, but their body didn't decay. And so they came back to life before the body could decay. So David wasn't talking about himself. He had to be talking about somebody else. Who was he talking about? Well, he's talking about Christ. Verse 31, he looked ahead. David was looking ahead. 
and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, the realm of the dead, Hades is the realm of the dead, nor did his flesh suffer decay. And so before his body decayed, it was brought back to life. He came back to life. And so Peter says the scripture supports the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. Now there's another line of evidence. You see this in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. I envision Peter maybe standing before a crowd like this, and he says, this Jesus God raised up again, we're, we're all witnesses, <laughs> pointing to his colleagues, the other apostles. And so there is the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Jesus appeared to the apostles over a space of about 40 days, and he appeared to them on multiple occasions. The first of those occasions was on the day of resurrection. On that very day, before that day was over, Jesus had already begun to present himself alive to the apostles. John chapter 20 and verse 19 talks about Jesus appearing to them when they are all together in, in a room, the door is closed. All of them were there except Thomas. A week later, they were all together. This time, Thomas was with them. He appeared to them in Galilee, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16. John chapter 21, another appearance in Galilee. Last of all, he appeared to the apostles near Bethany. And on that occasion, he was lifted up and ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. And so on several occasions between the crucifixion and the day of Pentecost, Jesus appeared alive to his apostles and offers, offers himself to them. Look at my hands, look at my feet. He eats with them. He invites them to handle him and to touch him. And so it's not a vision, it's not a hallucination. It's the actual physical body of Jesus that was raised from the dead. And while we're talking about these appearances to the apostles, we would include Paul the apostle, or as he was at that time, Saul of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 16, the Lord appears to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And he just makes an interesting comment there, verse 16. Get up and stand on your feet, the Lord tells Saul. For this purpose, I have appeared to you. And so notice that. The Lord says, I have appeared to you. And so this isn't a dream or a spiritual vision of some kind without corporal reality. This is Jesus appearing to Paul, actually Jesus appearing to him. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things that you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives us a list of several to whom the Lord appeared, uh, the, the, the twelve among them. And then he says, and last of all, he appeared to me. It's one born out of time or untimely born. All the, all the apostles testified to the resurrection. All say the same thing. All stake their lives on it. All give their lives to it. They're men of exceptionally high character. Not one of them ever changed his mind or backed off their claim, his claim to the resurrection of Jesus. But there are other eyewitnesses as well. Two on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, several women 
In John chapter 20, we read Mary Magdalene and the appearance of Jesus to her there at the tomb. Luke chapter 24, another group of women. Again, Paul gives a list of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, to the resurrected Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, eyewitness testimony is not always certain. You know, if I, if I see something very, very briefly out of the corner of my eye, and then I turn and look and it's gone, my testimony is not going to be real, real good in, in court. Now, Mr. Hutto, tell me what you see. Well, well, you know, I only got a little glimpse of it, and didn't vouch for it. And that kind of eyewitness is not, it's not real good. But <laughs> when several eyewitnesses see the same thing several times over a span of time, and they all agree and speak with great certainty, now that testimony is strong. And that's what you've got in the case of the resurrected Jesus. You have several witnesses, not just one, but several, all see the same thing, all say the same thing about what they saw. They saw it multiple times over a span of time, and they speak with great confidence. Now that's powerful testimony. Eyewitness testimony that's convincing. The third line of evidence that he gives here in Acts chapter 2, I think, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so, in verse 33, he says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. And then he, he continues. How is that evidence of the resurrected Christ? Well, you might remember when Jesus meets with his disciples in John chapter 7, for example, in verse 6. He says, I'll tell you the truth, it's for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will, I will send him. Now, we know where he's going. He tells us he's going to the Father. And so he's going to die. He's going to ascend to the Father. And he says, now, if I do that, if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to send Him to you. You see a very similar statement in the book of Luke, chapter 24. Remember, Luke is the same author, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus says, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. And uh, he goes on to say, you're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Acts 1 tells us, that they're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And so, in essence, what Jesus is saying, I'm going to send, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. Now, if Jesus was dead and in the grave, how could he send the Holy Spirit? <laughs> no, no, he's come up out of the grave, ascended to the Father, sits at his right hand, and sends the Holy Spirit. And so in this, in this passage, I think there are three lines of evidence. There's scriptural support for the resurrection. There's eyewitness testimony and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now some people simply reject out of hand the possibility of a resurrection. All that they'll admit to, all that they'll accept is what, what they see, what they can measure, what's physical, what's natural, what's according to the natural physical law. And so if you can't measure it or weigh it or you know, touch it or feel it or taste it, then they're not going to believe it. But for those who are open-minded enough to accept the possibility that there is a spirit world, that there is a God, an all-powerful God, 
who can raise the dead, for those who are open to that possibility, the evidence is clear and convincing. Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, what's the implication? One implication is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. You know, Jesus makes some fantastic claims, doesn't he? If you think about it, they're just, just fantastic claims about himself. And there's no way, they're not measurable claims, you know. He doesn't claim to be 10 feet tall or anything like that. What does he claim? I, I am the light of the world. I, I'm the light of the world. And there's some exclusivity involved in that kind of statement. I and I alone am the light of the world. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one knows the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. I have a special relationship that nobody else has with the Father. I and the Father are one. He makes that claim about, that's, that's fantastic, isn't it? That's audacious. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And he claims to be the Son of God, and accepted it when others made that kind of statement about Him. Remember Matthew 16? Who do men say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you. My Father has revealed that to you. And so, and so He not only allows people to make that confession, He encourages them and supports them in the confession. That's, those are some, those are really out, we would almost consider them outlandish claims for a person to make. He did fantastic things. He forgave people's sins. He told people, your sins are forgiven. He allowed people to worship Him. They bowed down at His feet and worshiped Him, and He, he let them do it. Remember others in the Bible, when that happened, they would say, no, 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 no. I, I'm a man just like you. Or, no, no, don't, don't worship me. Worship God. But Jesus doesn't say that. He allows people to worship Him. Why should we believe that Jesus is the light of the world? Why should we believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life? Why should we believe Him when He says, I and the Father are one? Why should we believe that He's the Son of God? Jesus offers proof. I guarantee you that these statements are true. I'm going to give you some proof that these statements are true. Look at Matthew chapter 12, for example, beginning in verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Give us some, some proof. Give us some evidence that you are who you claim to be and the things that you say are true. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and no sign will be given it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just three days and three nights, though. <laughs> and so the sign of Jonah is the sign, is the evidence, is the proof that Jesus is who He claimed to be, that His words are true, that He is, in fact, the Son of God. I'm going to give you some proof of it. The sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah went down, 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 you know, in the belly of that great fish, way down in the earth, and then came back up again, was spit out, and went on his way. So the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, go down into the earth as a dead body, 
And then he'll come back up again, just like Jonah did. And then there are other passages. Look at John chapter 2. It's another similar statement. John chapter 2, and uh, we're going to look at verse 18. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he is speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Give us a sign. Give us a little proof. Give us some reason to believe what you're saying. I'll give you a sign. Destroy this body, speaking of his, his physical body, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. He says, now if that happens, you can be certain that what I'm telling you is true. Now if it doesn't happen, you can forget it all. But if it happens, you can know that I am who I say I am. I am the Son of God. Right, might remember the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, and that's the passage I'm alluding to here on the screen. Paul says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. He's declared to be, he's proclaimed to be, announced to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And when Thomas, John chapter 20, Thomas is finally convinced that in fact Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's skeptical. Oh, unless I feel the print of the nails in his hands and put my hand up into his side where the spear was thrust. I'm not going to believe unless I see it. Well, Jesus presents himself to Thomas. Thomas, look, look. <laughs> what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He got it, didn't he? He understood it. He understood the implications of the resurrection. Now, what does Jesus say to Thomas? Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You know who that is? Blessed are they who did not see. That's me and you. That's us. We haven't seen. We, we didn't see what Thomas saw. And yet we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and as a result, he's the Son of God. Another implication, we have an opportunity to begin a new life. Now, I want to look at a couple of passages uh, in uh, support of this. Ephesians chapter 1, for example, and beginning in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Now these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And so Paul is referring to the, the power of God to raise up Jesus from the dead. So He brought His power about, He manifested His power when He brought Him up from the dead and seated Him at, the, at, at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name this name, not only in this age but the one to come, put him in all things in subjection under his feet, gave him to head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus 
died, and God in His power raised him up again. And now he sits at God's right hand. God seated him at His right hand. Now, let's go to chapter 2. And <laughs> here's another way in which God manifests His power. Not only in the resurrection of Jesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Skip down to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Skip on down. We can skip on down to verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Jesus died. God raised Him up again, seated Him at His right hand. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But just as God raised up Christ, He raised us up in Christ. And He seats us in heavenly places. And He has good works planned so that we might walk in them. You see, that, you see that new beginning there? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have a new beginning. We have an opportunity for new life because Jesus has conquered death and has been raised from the grave. In another place, Acts chapter 13, Paul says that Jesus was raised never to return to corruption. Look at that, Acts 13 and verse 35. Verse 34 and 35, as, as for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now think about that. Jesus is raised from the dead. He ascends to the Father. He's never going to live, return to this life of corruption again. He's never going to come back in physical body and, and go to decay and live a life associated with corruption and, and so forth. We can live a life like that. Not, not only later, but right now. We can live a life free from moral corruption. Now, we're embedded in corruption. We're immersed in corruption before but now in Christ, we've been rescued. We've been delivered from that corruption. And we don't ever have to return to it again. And so because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have an opportunity to put our old life behind us and begin again. You ever heard people say, everyone deserves a second chance? I, I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't believe we ever really deserve a second chance. Sometimes we don't even deserve a first chance. But in Christ, we're given a second chance. Not now we don't deserve it, but in Christ, by God's grace, we're given another chance to please Him. There are lots of good examples of those who have taken advantage of this opportunity. Saul of Tarsus is maybe one that comes to mind really quickly. Describes his former manner of life in 1, Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I was a persecutor, a blasphemer, a violent aggressor. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in an unbelief. And yet, 
the Lord gave me another chance. I was injurious. I inflicted injury on people. I was a violent aggressor. I was a blasphemer. But God had mercy on me, and He gave me another opportunity. The Corinthians are another good example of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You remember, Paul describes what kind of people they are or were before they became a Christian. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals. But you were washed and sanctified and justified. You got another chance. Now you were this, but because Christ is raised from the dead, you can be raised out of that life and you can live again. And there are many others. And so we have great hope in Christ. Are you ever dissatisfied with your life spiritually? You ever dissatisfied with that? You know, I'm just, I, I, I get disgusted with myself sometimes. I'm just not what I need to be. You ever discouraged by sin and spiritual failing? You ever feel overwhelmed and overcome by your own personal demons? You know, I just, I, it's just so discouraging. I just have this problem. I just can't, I just can't seem to get over it. You ever feel like Paul, as he writes in Romans chapter 7, Paul's struggling under the law to be what God wants him to be and says in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good I, that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want. You ever feel like that? Wretched man that I am? Well, if you do, be encouraged. You see, Christ died and rose again so that you can begin a new life in Him. Your sins will be forgiven. The old man dead and gone, a new life begins. Now when does this new life begin? When, 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 when do I start? When does the new life begin? Romans 6. Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Jesus died, went down, died with regard to sin, went down into the tomb, came up out of the tomb. So we die with regard to sin in our life. We go down into the water, we come up and begin that new life. And we need to say that the new life begins with responsibilities. It must be apart from sin. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And so this new life has responsibilities. The responsibility to live a holy life. Remember that we said of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, you were washed, you were sanctified. Okay, being sanctified, live a sanctified life. <laughs> live what you've become. God has sanctified you. Live a sanctified life. You know, when we stumble and when we fall and when we sin and make those kinds of mistakes, don't be discouraged. You see, Hebrews 7 verse 25 tells us that Christ ever lives to make intercession for you. And so it's in the resurrection of Jesus. Even after we become Christians and begin that new life and yet stumble and fall sometimes, it's still in the resurrection of Jesus that we have hope. And then the final point we want to make is this. That the resurrection of Jesus means that death is not the end. Death is not the end. 
In a way, death is just the beginning, isn't it? That we will be raised ourselves from the dead. Christ has defeated death. No one else has been able to defeat death, but Christ has defeated it. Our greatest fear is death. I've seen, I've seen uh, surveys that say public speaking is people's greatest fear. Death is second. You know? <laughs> I don't know that I really believe that. That death is our greatest fear. We do anything within our power to avoid it. We'll go to desperate lengths to sustain our lives. We'll resort to almost any so-called cure just to hang on to life. It may be that we do that because we're unsure of what's going to follow death. You see, Christ died and rose again. And if Christ can be raised by the power of God, we can be raised as well. We notice 1 Corinthians chapter 15 already this morning, verse 20. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own order. And so, you see, in Christ we can conquer death. Death can't defeat us because in Christ we'll be victorious over the grave. In fact, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, verse 50, Paul talks about the resurrection. Paul talks about the new incorruptible, imperishable, immortal body. He says in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, victory over death through Christ. And so, what does the resurrection mean? Well, the resurrection did happen. There's plenty of evidence for it if we're open to it. But what does it mean? It means Jesus is the Son of God. It means we have an opportunity to begin again, to be born again. But it also means we'll be raised in the last day. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, Paul says that he gave up every advantage that he had before he became a Christian. Whatever was advantage to him, he gave that up. In order to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, that's verse 10. I just want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Well, we may have in mind the resurrection at the last day when later on, as he says, God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. I think He also meant, I want to, I want to experience the power of the resurrection in my life right now. <laughs> I want to experience the, the power, the effect of the resurrection now. The power to change my life. The power to enable me to begin again. So that I can continue through this life in a right relationship with God. It can have the same power on us as well. If we'll be open to it. <laughs> if we'll accept it, if we'll accept the implications of it. And so let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this day, the first day of the week, the day that we come together and assemble and worship you. We pray that what we've done today has been pleasing to you as we've sung together and prayed together, as we've uh, recalled the death of your Son on the cross for us to make atonement for our sin. Father, also we recognize the resurrection of Jesus today. 
We understand that Jesus has come to earth, lived as one of us, that he died on the cross, was buried, but on that third day he was raised from the dead. Because we believe that, Father, we believe him to be the Son of God. We believe that he has the power to wash away our sins, everything in the past that we've done in transgression against your law, and that we've been able to begin again. Help us, Father, to live that new kind of life in Christ, modeled after his life. When we stumble and fall, Father, we're thankful that the Son is sitting at your right hand to make intercession for us. We pray, Father, that you'll help us day by day to be conformed more and more to the image of your Son. And Father, we have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus, that death is not the end of our existence, that we will be made alive again, that we'll conquer the grave, and that we'll be in your glory, that we'll be in your presence. We'll serve you throughout eternity with the Son and the Spirit and all those who have been given that crown of righteousness, all those who have fought the good fight and finished the course. Help us think about these things, Father, today and in the coming days, and may they have full impact on our lives each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're ready to come